Welcome to the latest March Madness 365. I'm your host, Andy Katz. On this edition of our show, I'll be joined by Tennessee head coach Rick Barnes and Penn's Jelani Williams. I'll also have my Cats ranks. This time I did the top 10 glue guys from the championship teams from 2010 to 2019. Didn't have a championship in 2020, so we went back 10 years. A lot of these lists have been from 2011 through the 2020 season, but because we're dealing with championships, I went back to 2010. First, Rick Barnes. Now, Rick and I are going to discuss how he's handling this unprecedented time of dealing with COVID-19, an awakening on college campuses with social injustice and the empowerment of his players. We'll also dive into Barnes's dream player, just like I did with North Carolina's Roy Williams, Syracuse's Jim Beheim, Florida State's Leonard Hamilton, Auburn's Bruce Pearl, West Virginia's Bob Huggins, and Michigan State's Tom Izzo. I'm going to give Rick 10 categories, and he's going to give me his player that represents each one of those those categories. Now, this was not easy for him because he's coached a ton of talent at Texas and Tennessee, let alone his earlier stints at George Mason, Providence, and Clemson. And then we'll get to Williams. His father, Kyle, introduced a program called A Long Talk. Uh, He's part of Team Takeover, one of the AU teams uh, on the East Coast, very successful. And Kyle had a successful session with a number of high-profile college coaches uh, at all levels to discuss the uncomfortable. Uh, And all this is to help affect change and help uh, a new way of discussing things. And I'm going to talk to Jelani about that. Um, And look, for Jelani, he's had three knee surgeries, three. So he's been waiting a long time to get on the court. Unfortunately, the Ivy League, no fall sports. uh, So... He's hoping he'll be on the court in January with Penn, which should be one of the best teams in the Ivy League once they do get to play Ivy League games. And we'll talk about that as well. But let's start off first with my interview with Tennessee's Rick Barnes. Rick, before we get to your dream player that we've been doing over the last uh, seven weeks with a lot of your peers, um, I want to get to just sort of state of affairs right now as we're discussing here in mid-July Um, there's been some football decisions in some of these major conferences about conference only in the big 10 and the PAC 12, uh, basketball. We've got time. We've got time to wait. Um, but there have been voluntary workouts. I know some Tennessee players are back on campus. Um, so from a basketball perspective with time on our side for our sport, uh, where do you think we are in terms of, uh, you know, whether or not we potentially hopefully can have a season on time in November? Well, I think that's a really good question everybody's thinking about, but I, I do think we're at a point in time right now where I'm not sure uh, if I were the athletic director uh, or an administrator, I'd be thinking about anything other than how do we get football going right now? Uh, you said that we've got time for basketball and we can make those adjustments. And, and, you know, I remember back when season didn't start until November 27th, you know, Thanksgiving weekend and, and uh, so I've seen a lot of different changes in terms of how early we move to start the season up. But I just think right now we've got to go day by day and see where we are with how uh, with what's going on with the pandemic. And uh, hopefully we can get back in school and you know get going that way and, and continue to practice all the things that we we need to be doing. And and uh, hopefully that more than anything is I mean I, I talk about football from an athletic standpoint I, I think about young kids uh, that need to be in school you know 
first, second graders, preschool, all that. Uh, I just know that if we miss a year, it'll be a year we'll never be able to make up from those vantage points. But uh, I just think right now administrators are trying to think and hope to buy time and see if we, things get better day by day. What's it been like for your players that have been on campus in terms of following protocol and going through, whether it's temperature checks, self-checks, uh, obviously masking on campus um, and monitoring their own behaviors uh, here, at least uh, in July? Our guys have been tremendous with that, Andy. You know, I, again, I, I, great credit's got to go to our, our chancellor and our athletic director and our athletic department that they set the procedures up and they've, uh, they've made it you know, cool to be able to, you know, wear a mask on campus. But uh, I tell you, as I walk in and and I don't get to really observe that much, but uh, I am on campus and I see our players doing what they're supposed to be doing. One thing that they haven't been allowed to do yet is play five on five on campus. Uh, You know, they're able to go through the protocol that every other team in the country can go through with the strength conditioning and all those type things. But, uh, and they can come into the gym, but uh, we practice all the, you know, the, the, the things that are supposed to be in place, the social distancing and, and everything with our players, you know, that what we do when one group leaves, the balls, everything are totally cleaned. And, but we've taken it very seriously, and, and I'm thankful that our players have done the same thing. How much are you watching? I mean, the, the, the TBT, that tournament went on, or, you know, and I know there's been some issues, but for the most part, they're getting through it. Uh, we're watching NBA teams practice. Hopefully they'll get to their games at the end of the month in their bubble. Um, in the sport of basketball, how much are you watching to see how this all plays out? Well, I'm not watching that, those type things right yet. I mean, if, if they do, you know, the tournaments that they're supposed to do and some of the AAU things that might be going on, obviously my assistants will show me or have me do whatever it is they need me to do to, to see a prospect if he's there. But uh uh, again, what I'm most concerned about is our community and our, our state right now that we, uh, you know, that we're doing the right things here and we're doing everything we can to, to help those that need help. Rick, I'm just curious also just with your players uh, admit, and we talked at the beginning of the pandemic, but uh, obviously since then with, um, you know, George Floyd's murder has really woken everyone up in terms of the systemic racism, the social unjust, injustice that's gone on for centuries. Um, you work with the African-American co- uh, community uh, and you have your entire professional life. Um, you know, in terms of conversations that you've had with your players, because once everyone gets on campus, that'll become even more of a talking point uh, as the, the greater college communities come together. Um, what have those conversations been like with your staff and players? Well, you know, it's, it's difficult if you don't do it face-to-face, I think, where you can really sit down and have talks. But as we talk to them and we we listen, and I think that's the main thing, too. You know, you said it. I'm, we've been involved, you know, I've spent the majority of my life in, in African-American homes, you know, recruiting, you know, student athletes. And uh, I think the one thing we haven't done, Andy, we haven't ever – truly lived up to the constitution. And uh, I think that's got to be where the talk is. I'd like to think that we're going to do it in ways that are productive and not destructive. Uh, I do think that universities are going to work even harder at diversity. I I do think that one thing is 
you know, getting uh, African-Americans in administrative positions. And so I like to see our players when they leave here, you know, one thing that our players do, the majority of our, our African-American players, they want to be professional basketball players. So they spend 8, 10, 12, 14, 15 years once they leave campus pursuing that sport. And then when they're 30, 35 years old, they come back, you know, now they have to start a career that's going to maybe be with them for the rest of their life. And that's when I like to think that we've got things in place that we can help. And uh, But along the way, I like to think that while they're here, we can try to help every player and every person know that life's going to throw you some curves here or there. And But uh, you've got to have a circle of trust with people around you that you know you can, you know, that's saying you can always come back home. I think that's important that people know that they can always come back and there's people that are going to love them and be with them when things don't go well. And I can tell you, I, you and I could talk all day about, former players that I've coached who's reached out and have needed help financially in other areas. And I think that's one of the great benefits of going to college is that the people that you meet, you know that there are people that care about you, they love you, and, and they're going to be there for you. And you might not even realize it right now, but when you get to be maybe 10, 12, 14, 15 years removed, even further, you know that that contact and that relationship is, is still there. One last thing before we get to your dream player, Rick. Um, your assistance, and this has been a big push, and you're talking about, you know, advancement of African-Americans uh, in the sport after they're playing. And you've done a great job of promoting your assistance. Your assistants over the course of your tenure have been head coaches, successful head coaches. How, how much has that been an important part of your mentoring your assistants to ensure that they get those opportunities? Well, Andy, I, I think the biggest thing is I've always – felt like I've, I wanted to hire people that I thought were better than me, people that I knew that could improve our program at every level. And I think that if you do that and, you, and, you, and your heart is in the right place, there's going to be a direction that you're going to go with the program. But the biggest thing is you're going to allow them to work and allow them to help you as opposed to thinking that because uh, I could tell you every assistant coach that I've had, has they've helped me in some way. They've made me see things sometimes in ways that I didn't see it. And I, you know, I've got, I've just got great respect for, uh, and I will tell you this in most situations when I have known that one of my assistants were going to be moving on to a, a head coach position, I pretty much have already made up my mind prior to the, uh, them leaving who I would hire and put in that place. But it's always with my assistant coaches that are on my staff have a great deal of say with who they want to work with and who they think will help us get better. And then when they come in, truly, we're going to let them, we want them to work. We're not going to try to, you know, make them say, this is how we do things. If, if uh, there's a different way that somebody does something that's good, we're going to implement it to what we do. And uh, so I think the key to what, in terms of the guys that I've coached that have gone on, they're, they're, they're great coaches. They're, they would have been, good regards of where they went and i'm just blessed and thankful that they were able to, to help us and, and make us better all right rick i'm gonna hard segue here into the dream player uh we have done this um with a lot of your friends and peers over the last um what has it been seven yeah seven weeks uh we started out with roy williams jim Beheim, leonard hamilton bruce pearl bob huggins tom izzo 
And now it's your turn. Um, so I give you the categories and you tell me over the course of your career, who fits this category the most. I will start with your quarterback, your playmaker. Uh, and before you give me this answer, keep in mind in terms of guards, and it has trended in this direction, uh, we have two other categories later where I'll hit you with a basketball IQ, not that it only has to be a guard, and a, and a team captain, but a lot of coaches have used guards in these various three positions and we've moved people around. So we will start with your ultimate playmaker. Who is it? Well, can I, before we get started, Andy, can you, can I say that now, you know, I've coached at what, four different universities, right? Is that right? Yes. Uh, yeah. And so, and also I want to say that I coached some guys for one year, two years, three or four years, but I also want you to know that when I, when I took this very seriously and I called a couple of my assistant coaches that were with me because I really wanted to try to do it. And what was amazing was I said, let's think about it quickly in terms of, you know, what comes to your mind without a long drawn out process of going through all the players that we've coached. And you would be shocked how we were uh, uh, named the same people. It was really interesting from that point of view. But go ahead. So just take that I might. Now, I might throw out a couple names at the same spot, but I can't help that because of. uh, That's all right. That's all right. This is your list, not mine. Okay. All right. So your playmaker, your quarterback. T.J. Ford. Why? Well, um, for the same reason, if you ask me why he's the captain, is because he had the ability to make everybody understand exactly what they did well. And if they did what they did well, we would be an outstanding team. He understood the game. He understood how to put everybody in a position to make them flourish. And he led you to a final four. All right. Yeah. Your clutch player, game on the line, who are you going to? Well, again, we thought about guys that made clutch shots. It just not just once, but a couple of different times. And the first guy that came to mind was a guy named Brian Boddicker. And uh, I'll tell you, this is the best story I can tell you. We were playing at Oklahoma the year we went to the final four. And I got upset with Brian. I took him out of the game and in front of the whole team. I told him I wasn't going to play him anymore. And we were walking back to the bench, and T.J. Ford walked over with me and he said, Coach, what are you thinking? I said, I'm thinking if we don't get it turned right now, we're in trouble. And he said, well, if you don't play Brian Bodker, we're not going to win. I said, well, you heard me tell him that I'm not going to play him. He said, well, you don't want to win, Coach. And I walked right down to the bench and told Brian, I said, I'm going to give you one more chance. And he goes in the game literally 45 seconds after this timeout, and T.J. Ford met him when he was coming on the floor. And I kid you not, in, in a matter of 40 seconds or so, Brian Boddicker hit three straight threes, turned the whole momentum around in the game, all assists from T.J. Ford. And uh, we ended up winning the game and getting the number one seed in the NCAA tournament. But then I thought of Terrell McIntyre at Clemson. Uh, I can't tell you how many game-winning shots he made for us. And at t- Tennessee, I, Lamonte Turner made a lot of big shots at different times for us. All right, you're. This is another. You've had. You've coached so many that would fit in this category. Your top athlete. Well, that is a tough one. But uh, again, right off the top of my bat, Eve Ponds that we have here right now is as athletic as any player that we've had, and I'd have to probably put Tristan Thompson in that category a little bit, along with Damian James. But uh, right now, Eve Ponds is his athleticism and what he does is uh, pretty phenomenal. Uh, I think I know the answer, but I, I want to hear it from you. Who would be your bucket getter? The best bucket getter ever, <laughs> Kevin Durant. Yes. 
But I am. I go back to the fact I coached him for one year. I coached P.J. Tucker for three, and P.J. Tucker was a big-time bucket getter when you needed it to in college. He really was. Uh, once again, I mean, you, you've had such a great career that we could really go five, ten deep in this list here. Yeah. Uh, your shooter, who was your best shooter? No question, A.J. Abrams. No question. Uh, and every guy I asked, that's what they said. That was the answer to everybody, A.J. Abrams. And A.J. was a phenomenal player. He scored almost 2,000 points in his career at Texas, and that's playing with our great teams. That's with playing with Kevin Durant, you know, a year. It's also playing with uh, uh, all those LaMarcus Aldridge and all those guys. And when you almost score 2,000 points, and a guy that can really shoot it had as quick a trigger as anybody that you could imagine. And but he could he came in at 140. Uh, he's about 5'10", 140, but uh, he was he was a terrific shooter. Uh, once again, another uh, deep category for you. Your top defender. Man, that's another tough one. Uh, I go back uh, again. I'm this. I'm going to go back over again. A guy that I coached four years. And without question, her best team was Royale Ivy. Uh, he, uh, for four years, defended everybody that we uh, – I don't care who it was. He did an incredible job defensively. And another guy that for one year I thought was terrific was Avery Bradley. And uh, then at Clemson, a guy that I had that was a, Clemson's first ever ACC Rookie of the Year, and he led us to the three NCAA tournaments was uh, Greg Buckner. Those three guys really stand out. But over a, a, a four-year career, I'm not sure anybody was better than Roy Alotti. All right. How about a glue guy? Well, it's interesting you say that. That same guy, Roy Alotti. And I'm looking at that over four years. But uh, there's been – when I think about a glue guy, Grant Williams was a glue guy too. But uh, Roy Al was a guy that uh, – I mean, where he came in and where he started, uh, just phenomenal watching him. And uh, uh, that. I would say, again, I'd have to – again, I could go back to T.J. Ford and a number of those guys. But right off the top of my head, it would have to be Royal Ivy. How about your top rebounder, guy that could just – your rim protector, your rebounder, you could count on him? Well, rebounding-wise, uh, certainly uh, Damian James. I think, uh, you know, he, James Thomas were all great rebounders at uh, Texas. They broke all kinds of records and uh, – uh, but, again, you go back to rim protectors. I mean, if you're going to throw that in the category uh, off the top of my head, I mean, for a guy his size, nobody has done that any better than Eve Ponds. And, you know, you go back and look at Kyle Alexander here, came out of nowhere and ended up with great numbers. Tristan Thompson did that. But uh, Chris Mim, my first guy I coached, that, uh, those guys, he was the first legit seven-footer that I coached, and he did a tremendous job. But, uh, and again, I'm just going random with a rim protector off the top of my head. I didn't know that was part of your question. Well, no, no, no. All right. Well, let me go back to the original rebounder. Who would be the rebounder? D- Damian James. Damian James, without question. But for a guy his size and the way he, that's what he wanted to do. He had a great passion. I mean, that's all he wanted to do. And James Thomas, those two guys were, without question, the two guys that just loved rebounding. All right. Basketball IQ. Well, I could make a case for a lot, but if I had to pick just one guy and I am going to do it in this category, it's Grant Williams, without question. But Grant would be there. And when that, when I looked at that category, he came up. I'm not sure I coached. Uh, T.J. Ford saw the game in a very unique way, and he helped me 
see things in a way that I'd never really looked at it, but from a purely a basketball understanding, could remember everything from every position and understand what you're trying to do. Grant Williams would, would win that category. And the last category, the team captain. Well, again, I, I hate to pick one guy because I could ramble on about a lot of them. But like I said, when I started, T.J. Ford would be a hard guy not to put in that position. T.J. Ford won 77 straight high school games, you know, three state championships, and never averaged over 10 points a game in high school. Came to college, all he wanted to do was lead the nation in assists. That was his goal. But more importantly, he wanted to make his teammates better. He wanted to put them all in positions and make them understand that they did their job. We have a great team. And I, I will tell you this. Uh, when you think of a captain, I'd also put a category in there where you just knew you were going to be okay because you had this guy on your team. And those two guys would be TJ Ford and Kevin Durant. You knew that both of those guys had the ability at any point in time to take the game over. So that's that's being a captain or being a, a leader or whatever, wherever you want to put them. You went into every game knowing that, hey, we're going to be okay because these guys are with us. Uh, before I let you go, I mean, this is obviously for good reason, Texas, Tennessee heavy. Uh, but I, I want to give you a chance to, if you wanted to give any shout outs to players that you coached early on, where a little bit of Clemson or Providence or even before that. Well, yeah, well, I go back to my first year at George Mason, you know, Amp Davis was a tremendous uh, point guard. I mean, uh, Amp was a guy that when I took the job, he weighed 100 and 95 pounds. He's five nine, five ten, and I told him, and I had recruited Ant to George Mason, but left and you know had made two stops at uh, Alabama and Ohio State. And when I came back to the head coach, uh, I told him, I said, "You want to lose weight, or you can keep your scholarship, and I'm not, not let you play." And he actually lost 35 pounds that summer on his own, and came back. And that year, we lose to Richmond in the conference championship tournament game. That and that's the year that Richmond beat. Uh, Syracuse, remember, I think it was the first time a 15 beat a, a two, but um, that team was a, a terrific I mean, he was a terrific player there and then when I went to Providence, Eric Murdoch um, you know, was a guy that when we transitioned through a number of different things uh, Eric was a guy that one year led the Big East in scoring where he carried us and then uh, the team that won the Big East Championship, you know, it was loaded with NBA players, you know, guys that were recruited, you know, Eric Williams, uh, Austin Crozier, Dickie Simpkins, Michael Smith, so many guys that were terrific players, you know, Rob Phelps. I mean, uh, and then as I left and went to Clemson, I mean, certainly Greg Buckner was a big key, but Terrell McIntyre coming in, those two guys were probably the catalyst with uh, – uh, in terms of being our go-to guys pretty much through that time. And then uh, going to Texas and at Tennessee, you know, Kevin Plunger, when we first got here was the first guy that truly bought into a new system. You know, this, uh, you know, like Providence when I went, they had, had a number of different co coaches in a you know short period of time. And so you had players getting ready to play for a third coach, maybe in four years and, you need someone that's going to buy in and help you set the foundation. And Kevin Punter did an incredible job here for us. And that's when we came in with, uh, you know, a year later with that group of guys, you know, uh, Lamonte Turner was part of that first class. That's why it was hard not to put him down as a big 
clutch player because he he was with us when we were just getting started here and we struggled. Uh, but then next class with you know that turned this thing around for us here, you know Grant and Bone, uh, Admiral Schofield and Kyle Alexander and uh, those guys. Uh, I mean they what they did was pretty pretty remarkable when you think about it. Well, Rick, uh, as always, this was great just going down a little memory lane with you. But uh, most importantly, stay safe uh, to you and your family. And I just hope we can talk about this season upcoming here uh, sooner than later uh, in the coming months. Thanks, Andy. Take care of yourself and stay safe. Andy Katz, that guy will rank his wife's dinners. He'll rank anything. Now it's time for my Katz Ranks. Top 10 glue guys in the last 10 national champions. Let's start at number 10. Niels Gafai from UConn. He ended up having 10 and 5. That's 10 points and 5 boards in 2014. Uh, the German native was a key contributor to two championship teams, 2011 and 2014. Um, but his contributions in 2014 were critical. Not a great roster, yet the UConn team won the national championship that year. At number 9, from Villanova in 2016, Daniel Ochefu. He ended up having nine and six in that game and had a key, key, uh, basically wiping the floor, uh, screen. Uh, he was critical in the setup of the Chris Jenkins game winner. Ryan Archie Diacono, two Jenkins for the winner, but Ochefu was in that play. And la- after that game, I was there for ESPN. We, we recreated it 11 times, I think. Chris, and we talked about this on the podcast, he might have hit nine of them. But Ochefa was there with us with Archie Diacono and Chris Jenkins. He's at number nine. At number eight, I'm going back to UConn from 2011. Alex Oriaki at 11-11 in that championship game in 2011. At number seven, Emil Jefferson from Duke. 2015, he only had 2.7 boards in that game. Uh, obviously, at the end of that game, Grayson Allen was huge, finishing off against Wisconsin. But Emil Jefferson was a veteran presence, a glue guy throughout the course of that season with the big three freshmen of Jaleel Okafor, Justice Winslow, Tyus Jones, and Jefferson and Quinn Cook. They were critical to get that team across the finish line. At number six, 2010, Brian Zubek. Huge, huge presence, literally figuratively, in Duke's win over Butler. Eight points, ten boards in that championship game in 2010. At number five, Theo Pinson from North Carolina. 2017, Carolina's win over Gonzaga. He had nine and six in that national championship game. Great presence. Did a little bit of everything for the Tar Heels. So I want to include Theo Pinson from North Carolina. At number four, he wasn't a glue guy in the championship game. uh, And that was at Louisville. Luke Hancock, 22 and 10. Ended up being the most outstanding player in 2013 for Louisville's win over Michigan. A title that was later vacated, but Luke Hancock in that game, phenomenal for the Cardinals. Blue guy throughout the course of the season, but MOP in the final game. At number three, Mamadi Diakite from Virginia in 2019. 7-9 in the title game over Texas Tech. Obviously had the putback to send the Purdue game in the Elite Eight to overtime. Critical glue guy for the Cavaliers. Was not a number one option, but he made things work for the Cavaliers. He checks in at number three. At number two, once again, not as critical in the championship game, Darius Miller, 2012 Kentucky, five and six. But throughout the course of the season, 
very similar to Emil Jefferson. Darius Miller was a quote veteran presence uh, on a freshman dominated team. So Darius Miller gets my nod as a critical glue guy on that team. But at number one in 2018, Dante DiVincenzo from Villanova, MOP, like Hancock, 31 off the bench. More than a glue guy in the championship game, but he was throughout the course of the season. So those are my championship level glue guys over the last 10 champions in the final four. And now joining me here, March Madness 365, Jelani Williams from Penn. And uh, Jelani, first, a couple topics I want to get into with you. But before that, uh, I want to see how you're feeling because you came out of Sidwell Friends uh, in 2017, but you've had three ACL injuries. So despite a pandemic, uh, you've had to deal with a lot of issues just to get on the court. And then you throw this curveball at you over the last couple of months. And uh, and obviously we'll get into what the Ivy League has decided for the fall. But uh, first of all, all things being equal, how ready were you to get back onto the court? Uh, first, thanks for having me, Andy. Um, honestly, I feel great. Um, my, my body is, uh, you know, almost back to 100% of, of what I want it to be. Um, I've been working really hard over the past year, so uh, my body feels great. You know, hopefully uh, we'll be able to get a shot at playing this season. But, you know, if, if not, um, you know, I, I've been waiting for a while anyway. I, I can I can wait some more. It's just going to give me some more time to, you know, get my body right. But But I feel good at this moment. Yeah, so you have an, actually an interesting perspective because you've been able to take all of this in over the last couple of years and see how the game has evolved and all the issues that are going on. And so I want to take a couple of these uh, one at a time. And first, um, let's deal with the COVID-19 issue. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, you guys have not been able to do much. Obviously, different schools around the country are bringing guys back for volunteer workouts. Um, you're recovering yourself. And then the Ivy League makes the decision that no fall sports. Um, we don't know what that means for men's and women's basketball in terms of can they actually play non-conference games or not. Uh, that's still TBD about if anything can happen before Jan 1 or if games would happen after Jan 1. So what's been the reaction about you know that decision and where you and your teammates are standing on, on, on what the uncertainty could bring with this upcoming season? Um, I think, you know, with all the uncertainty, like you mentioned, uh, it was something that me and my teammates kind of um, expected to some, to some degree, uh, you know, back in March when um, the Ivy league was the first league to, to cancel their conference tournament. Um, we kind of had an understanding that, okay, they're going to be ahead of, you know, they're going to lead the charge basically on this, on this issue, as far as COVID-19 and, you know, what sports looks like during this time that we're in. Um, so it was something that we kind of expected for the fall. Um, the Ivy League has taken a lot of action. You know, you see Harvard having only 40% of its students on campus at a time for this whole school year um, and doing pretty much everything online. Um, you see the rest of the schools in the Ivy League kind of following suit. So um, as far as sports go, we, we knew that, you know, it was very unlikely that they let us just kind of go back to normal and, and play. Um, so we were kind of prepared for that. Uh, but, but me and my teammates are, are, are still hopeful that we'll be able to do something in the second semester, um, you know, maybe get a couple non-conference games in uh, before that second semester starts. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think it's it's something that we we're prepared for. Um, you know, we got a bunch of mentally tough guys that are going to just keep pushing through it regardless. So, um, you know, we're just waiting for for the uncertainty to lift at this point. And practice, uh, it has not been determined whether or not you know where that stands. What's the mentality right now, or the hope I should say that in some form or fashion you guys will at least be able to practice on campus in the fall. Right. So um, we've, we've talked to, you know, our athletic directors and, and our coaches um, and our understanding as far as, you know, at least the first phase of us coming back, um, you know, right when we come back on September 1, we'll be able to get into the weight room. Um, we'll be able to do individual workouts with the coaches. And hopefully by the time, you know, November rolls around where, uh, when we would usually start practicing anyway, um, our coach basically said that, you know, there's a there's a chance that we're allowed to start practicing, whatever that looks like. Um, just trying to figure out, you know, what's the safest way to do that, if that's even possible. Uh, but the hope is that by November, hopefully we'll, we'll have it under control as a university and as well as in Philadelphia and in Pennsylvania in general, um, that the cases won't get too bad. And, and you know, we might have a little bit of leeway uh, to be able to get back in the gym with each other. Yeah, obviously everything's subject to change. Uh, we're all hoping and praying that things are going to be better, not worse, uh, as the year progresses. Um, all right, I want to shift uh, to one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on, which is uh, while all this is going on, uh, obviously since the murder of George Floyd, there's been an awakening of systemic racism. Uh, it's unfortunate and tragic. It took something like this to do this, but it has. Uh, but the, the ground has shifted below us, and I think we're going forward and not turning back. Um, your father, Kyle Williams, was uh, putting together something called a long talk that I want to want you to help me um, educate people on what that means and versus, you know, with college coaches. And you're from D.C. Uh, you went to Sidwell Friends, uh, which is a private school in D.C. I know people there and I know the community. Um, so you've sort of lived in all different worlds and I wanted you to, to help me address sort of a, what, the, what a long talk means and how you think things are changing as we are actually living through the change and what we could hope on the other side. Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, first, I just want to shout out to my dad, Kyle Williams for, for, you know, putting all this together and coming up with this idea. I was, you know, I was in the house with him obviously when he was you know, starting to formulate it and figure out how he wanted to put it all together. But um, basically a long talk, the full name is a long talk about an uncomfortable truth. Um, and it's essentially a live Zoom session uh, over three days, about an hour and 15 minutes, I think each day uh, to an hour and a half for, for three days, basically where, you know, you come in um, with some pre-work understanding uh, the history of race in America and racism in America um, understanding the the issues that have kind of led us to this moment, uh, the laws that were put in place, um, because a lot of people don't understand that not only has racism been an idea in our country and, and things that, you know, people uh, are raised to believe, but it also has been enacted by, by laws. Um, and there's been many uh, pieces of legislation that have been passed over the last, you know, 200, 300 years um, that have disenfranchised black people and have disadvantaged black people um, and just minority communities in general. Um, and so the, a long talk about an uncomfortable truth is, you know, mainly geared towards white people, but anyone who wants to learn more about, you know, what it means or what racism looks like in America over the, the past couple hundred years and up to today, 
Um, but, but further than that, um, I think that it, it does a really good job of empowering people with that knowledge so that they can go on and act. And so for his first, you know, program, um, being with, you know, a bunch of college coaches, uh, I don't exactly remember the number. I think there was about 115, 130 coaches on there uh, last week. Um, I think that's a, a really important place to start. Um, college coaches make a lot of money. Uh, they have a lot of say within their institutions. Um, and they, they, take, they care for a lot of kids and, and mostly kids of color. Um, and so I think in that sense, it's a great place to start. Um, you know, try to get coaches more knowledgeable and more empowered with knowledge about these issues and about, you know, the backgrounds of the kids that they deal with. Because I think, um, you know, a lot of coaches, they, they know the kids that they recruit and they know the kids that, you know, and and the families that they recruit um, and they're kind of content with just taking care of those kids. Um, I think where you make the jump after a long talk um, is understanding the fullness of where those kids come from um, and trying to make real change in those communities inside your own communities and just living with a different awareness, you know, as, as we grow as people um, and really look at ourselves, uh, we can see that, you know, there are certain things inside this system that we might've played along with or, or contributed to, Um, you know, whether that's, that's passively or intentionally, whatever it may be. um, I think a long talk does a good job of just making people see things for what they are, for what they've had, for what they have been and then empowering them, in a live raw setting where they can, you know, talk to people who, um, you know, know more about this topic and can, can, you know, bounce ideas off of people that understand what's going on um, and then go and take action in their own community. So I think it's a really good, uh, it's a really good form, a really good format. And I think, uh, you know, as he continues to develop the programming, it, it can move on past just college coaches and, and really make an impact on our country. So I've seen college coaches tweet about it, um, including your own Steve Donahue. How, how did he get from the idea to actually getting the coaches all on board to participate? Yeah. So, um, so as he was coming up with the idea, uh, my dad works for Team Takeover, uh, and he, he's the director of the grassroots um, division, which is second through sixth grade. Um, and he's in constant contact with you know Keith Stevens and, and Doug Martin, the heads of Team Takeover. Um, and so his idea, uh, you know, as he came up with his idea and, and he wanted to test it out on the coaches, we have a, a unique, um, power structure as a, as a program at team takeover. Um, and we have a unique database of coaches where, you know, a lot of pretty much every coach in the country has recruited a kid from team takeover at some point or another. Um, and so it wasn't in a situation where, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to try and require, um, every coach we deal with to come and be a part of this program. The idea was this is something that we feel is important um, for, for our kids. And if we're going to send our kids to you um, and, and you're going to take care of them for one, two, three, four years, however long they may stay, um, we feel that it's important that you know about this issue. And so, you know, he put out, uh, or my dad, as well as Keith and Doug put out, um, you know, basically the invitation to a long talk. Um, and you know, a lot of coaches were, were more than happy to, um, to sign up most, a lot of schools actually sent like their whole staff, you know, head coach all the way down, uh, a bunch of assistants. So I think, uh, you know, that, that's basically where it came from. That's kind of the database, uh, that, that we pulled from. 
Um, and, and, you know, it ended up working out really well. There's a lot of people that showed up. You know, it's hard to say like tangibly what's going to happen because we're in the middle of, you know, COVID-19, but so I, I won't say this year, but over the next two years, let's say, um, what do you hope you see tangibly that is different? Uh, not just because of this program, but just overall in terms of awareness, uh, within college athletics, cause that's our sphere of, of influence right now, uh, as it relates to, uh, racial equality and the way everyone is treated and awareness, mm-hmm. um, you know, just on a daily basis. Mm. Um, I think you hit it right on the head at the, at the end of that. I think, you know, the, the, the biggest piece of it for me, um, is that awareness. I think a lot of coaches, like I said earlier, understand, you know, to some degree what racism looks like and what the kids that they deal with uh, go through before they get to their program. But I think, you know, in terms of just the awareness, like uh, I would like for coaches to just be more aware of what, of what goes on in their locker rooms um, of what their kids have to deal with, uh, you know, and just the way that, certain things may come across. Um, I've, I've noticed that a lot of the coaches and a lot of the the administration in college athletics is white. So hopefully that can be some of a systemic change that, that stems over the next couple of years where we, we see more faces, um, of color and, and more women, more minority groups that, that have a say really in, in the way college athletics works. Um, and in particular college basketball. And then another thing in terms of, uh, you know, just the systemic change, I would like to see the NCAA as a whole um, kind of pour some resources into marginalized communities. I think that that's a big part of it. I think, you know, a lot of times, you know, since the NCAA has started, they've taken, you know, a select number of, of, of kids from these communities um, and use them to, to make them money. And, and, you know, aside from the fact that we don't get paid for playing, um, I think that it's it's very important um, if they do value racial justice and, and want to do something about it. I would like to see the NCAA take major action in terms of um, trying to subsidize areas and, and communities and neighborhoods that need it more. Um, you know, just really stepping up in that arena because there's a lot uh, that goes into racial inequality. It's, it's, it's housing, it's education, it's uh, it's, it's healthcare. Um, so I think that, you know, as, as the NCAA kind of wakes up more to, to its role in this, I think that they can have, you know, extreme, they can throw their weight around a little bit, uh, in terms of, of putting resources in and just creating different programming, you know, that that's, uh, I'm sure they have people around that can brainstorm ideas, um, and can, can really, uh, try to make real change because I think it's, it's important to not only care about, you know, the athletes that can make you money, but it's also important to, to care about the athletes and their, their communities and their families and try and, and try and make differences there. So I, I think if we can see, you know, those two things where on a, on an individual base, a school-wide base where, you know, coaches have a greater awareness of racial issues and they can, you know, look through that lens as they, as they go through, you know, their day-to-day life. Um, and then the NCAA as a whole decides, all right, we're going to make some change as far as, um, the way that underserved communities, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The way that underserved communities kind of move now, um, and, and they can, you know, pour some resources into that. I think those two things could be, uh, huge. And I, w- I would like to see it happen. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be hopeful because I thought last week as an example, where 46 
or it was actually two weeks ago, but four, 46, I did it last week in terms of my interview with the six division one men's basketball coaches in Mississippi. But a couple of weeks ago, when you had 46 coaches from schools in the state of Mississippi using their lobbying weight to help change the state flag in, in the state of Mississippi. Uh, and, you know, I think that we're getting to a point, I hope, that if there is injustice, a player will be confident and empowered to speak of it. And the coaching staff and the coach and the administrator, uh, you know, especially if they're white, won't be afraid of if, if it involved a booster or anyone else in the community of speaking out and admonishing it and reacting. Uh, and I hope the players, I think now will feel like, hey, this happened to me, you know, whether it was, you know, getting pulled over or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like they will feel more comfortable now more than ever to speak out. And I hope they will also be backed now more than ever. And I think we're starting to see that because that's the right side of history to be on that side, to speak out rather than to, to, to shut it down and to hope that it doesn't damage anything, whether it's funds or perception of your program or anything. Um, you know, I hope we're trending in that right direction. Right. Right. Andy. And I, I think it's, 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 it's important that you bring that up. Um, you know, that's something that I've been thinking about as well in the past. You know, if, if that was the case, especially in a state like Mississippi, um, where you have an athlete like Kylan Hills, uh, you know, speaking out and saying, we need to do something about this flag. Um, you know, it, it represents ideas that, that are not what this country should represent. Um, I don't feel comfortable representing a state that believes in, in this and, and, and holds this symbolism. Um, if that were to happen, say, a year ago or two years ago, that kid Honestly, even him being, you know, Mississippi State's all-time leading rusher, um, probably would have been blackballed out of the school. Yep. In all honesty, so, um, you know, this moment and you know the the awakening that you said has has been happening over the last you know couple weeks, I think is really important, and and I hope that we can sustain that because there is a lot of things that athletes see um, that that do need to change, and and for for me to see something that happened on that big of a scale and the amount of support that he received um, from his coaches and from his administration, where in the past it, it's likely that, you know, a coach at, at, at Ole Miss or Mississippi state would be like, Oh, I don't know. I'm not going to touch that one. Um, you know, we're just here to play football. Um, and so I think, yeah, that's, that, that was huge for me. I honestly going into that, when I first heard him say, you know, I'm not going to play unless the, the flag changes. I thought he just wasn't going to play. And that was, you know, that was what, what it was going to be. So, you know, to see that change really happen, that was really surprising to me and a really pleasant surprise, actually. And, and I hope, you know, that can continue and, and coaches will continue to have their players backs. So that was dope. Well, Jelani, I appreciate it. Uh, and uh, you and your dad, Kyle, obviously doing great work. Um, a shout out to your dad for everything that he's doing. And we hope that you're healthy, uh, that you're back on the court and we can watch Penn play in the Ivy uh, sooner than later. May not be till January, but at least uh, hopefully there will be a season for Penn to participate in. Uh, appreciate it, Jelani, uh, and stay safe. Yes, sir. Thank you, Andy. Thanks for having me. Go Quakers. Thanks again to our incredible Turner Sports staff, March Madness, Chad Acock, Abby Stoltz, Michael Kaplan, and Sean Bartley, and the entire team at NCAA.com who produces our written version of the podcast. Really appreciate all the work they have done in continuing to produce content that is original for us here with March Madison and NCAA.com. All right, everyone, stay safe. 
and we'll talk again next week. Thanks for listening.